0: It is Mother's Day, Happy Mother's Day. It is still Tide, Easter season. You know, I love that, that season of Lent, the, the preparation and the fasting is 40 days. And then we have Easter, and Tide is 50 days, 50 days of celebrating the resurrection. So thank you for being here as we continue in Easter, Eastertide. It's also Good Shepherd Sunday. In the lectionary, um, a cycle of readings throughout the year on this Sunday, a couple of the readings have to do with Jesus being the good shepherd, and we will get to those in a little bit. I'm going to, going to include that. As I, was, um, as I was thinking about Mother's Day, oh, and I have to tell you, this is the biggest treat. My mother is here with us this morning, Ruth Maughan. Um, she is a preacher and a Bible teacher, and at 81 is still a mentor for women. So um, she's been an incredible role model for me, and I'm just so glad that she's here this morning. Y'all all have to say hi to her after service. As I was thinking about Mother's Day this morning, the image that came to mind was one that is in Scripture, that we find in Scripture, the image of God as a mother hen gathering her chicks. And I am so grateful for the women who do the work of mothers, whether they have born a child or not, who do the work of gathering and loving and caring for. And so um, many of you in this room do that in some capacity. And we are grateful that you are a mother of the church, that you take that seriously. Our first passage this morning is about a disciple. I love stories about the disciples. You know, we, we know more about some of them than others through Scripture. And as we, as we read Scripture, as we read these stories, we get little glimpses into their lives, into their personalities, into these people who were devoted to Jesus, who heard, who believed, and who followed in some of the stories, it gets really real. I mean, we see their foibles and failures and stub toes. And in other stories, we see moments of growing faith and uh, getting out of the boat to walk on the water. And we often can imagine ourselves in these stories, even if it's to say, well, I would never have done that. Even if in your heart of hearts, you know, you probably would have. Some of these stories give us hope hope as we see this mixture of love for Jesus and growing faith and not understanding and bickering and running away and coming back and asking questions and then beginning to get it and then having that encounter with the risen Christ and the new reality starts to make sense. You know, I was sitting in a in a room this past week, beautiful place, and two of the walls were windows and the the room is situated at the top of a hill with a green lawn with big mature trees that were all in bloom down to the lake. And as I sat there and looked out the window, there was a moment when it was clear sky and beautiful, and then whoosh, the bottom fell out and it just was raining madly everywhere. And I know this is a really poor analogy and incomplete, but what I thought in that moment is this new reality of the risen Christ, this new creation, it's like this rain, it's here, covers everything. And so what I hope happens today as we look at these scriptures, as we dive into to what it means to follow the Good Shepherd, that we get a glimpse into what it's like to live in new creation, to live in this reality that Christ is risen and things are different. So the disciple that we're going to talk about this morning is only mentioned in this one place. We don't, we don't know a whole lot, but let's take a look at Acts nine thirty six through 41. Sometimes when we read these stories, it's the little details that reveal something profound to us. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. She was always doing good works and acts of charity. About that time, she became sick and died. After washing her, they placed her in a room upstairs. Since Lydda... Was near Joppa, the disciples heard that Peter was there in Lydda and sent two men to him who urged him, Don't delay in coming with us. Peter got up and went with them. When he arrived, they led him to the room upstairs, and all the widows approached him, weeping and showing him the robes and clothes that Dorcas had made while she was with them. Peter sent them all out of the room. He knelt down, prayed, And turning toward the body said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes, saw Peter, and sat up. He gave her his hand and helped her stand up. He called the saints and widows and presented her alive. Well, the most obvious point of this story is pretty easy to figure out, right? This disciple of Jesus, this devoted follower died and was brought back to life, brought back to life by Peter, by Peter, the disciple who had denied Jesus, who had run away, but then who encountered the resurrected Christ on a beach actually, and in a conversation filled with mercy and grace, Jesus touched all the wounded parts in Peter, that had happened as a result of that betrayal, that denial, and running away. And then, when the Holy Spirit fell on Pentecost, Peter was filled and he's now fulfilling the mission that Jesus gave him. So, in, in that fulfillment, he had been in Lydda, which was about 11 miles from Joppa. And two guys showed up. Come with us quickly. In that world, in the ancient, ancient world, in those times, burials happened pretty quickly after death. And so I wonder, I wonder how long it took, how quickly those men moved to get the 11 miles to Lydda and back with Peter. We don't know much about Tabitha from this story. But what we do know what we can clearly see is that she paid attention to and cared for the most vulnerable in her community. Those widows met Peter, showing him the things that she had made, but what that said was, look at how she loved us. In that ancient world, widows were the most vulnerable in a community. They were without protection, without standing, without means. A widow was totally vulnerable. And these widows gathered around Peter to say, look how she loved us. You know, James in his letter talks about widows, widows and orphans, um, representing the most vulnerable among us. And what he said was that true religion is caring for the widow and the orphan, caring for those without resources, without voice in the systems that decide how society works. That makes a difference in a community. And Tabitha's community sent two men to find Peter to come quickly because this woman, this disciple, had died, and they could not bear it. So I want you to keep this story of Tabitha kind of in the back of your mind and and tucked away because we will get back to her. But now I want to pivot a little bit to talk about the Good Shepherd. This is Good Shepherd Sunday. We're going to talk about right now what it means to be a sheep. And we'll go to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verses 22 through 30. The first 21 verses of this chapter Are really Jesus saying the same thing that he's going to say in 22? It's a longer discourse as he's talking to the Jews and he is describing himself as a shepherd, a shepherd of sheep. Describing himself that way to people for whom Messiah meant political power and government power and military power, and that's what they expected and were looking for. In fact, he, um, he goes through this explanation of being a shepherd and a sheep, and they just don't get it. They just don't get it. And so they come back a little bit later, and that's where we pick up at verse 22, Then the festival of dedication took place in Jerusalem, and it was winter. Jesus was walking in the temple in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews surrounded him and asked, How long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus said, I did tell you, and you don't believe. Jesus answered them. The works that I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you don't believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. They just don't get it. They tell us plainly. Well, I have told you plainly, and you don't believe. And these works that I do testify to my Father's name, and you don't get it. So he defines himself as a shepherd who knows his sheep. I am uh, really taken with the work of Dr. Kurt Thompson, who's a a Christian neuroscientist and has done a lot of work on um, what it means to, to believe. And what he says is that our deepest desire is to be known, to have somebody know us to the depths of our being, know us for who we truly are, and to love us. And many of us hide that or disguise it or camouflage it or put up barriers to it because it's a scary thing to be really, really known. And what we hear from Jesus is, I know my sheep. And not knowing in a generic big group of sheep, I know those sheep, but a knowing in an intimate, personal, loving way to the depth of your heart, to the things that trouble you, the things that bring you joy, the things that you desire. He knows you. And it's our response to that knowing that is to hear and to follow him. Know what he says next. My sheep... No one will snatch them out of my hand. You are safe in Jesus. You are safe in the Father's hands. No one will snatch them out of the Father's hands. And I don't know, I don't know what feels unsafe to you right now, but let me tell you nothing can snatch you out of Jesus' hand. You are safer there than you can be anywhere. You are safer there to the depths of your being than you can be anywhere else. Those who believe are held safe in his hands and safe in the Father's hands. That's what it means to be Jesus' sheep, to be cared for, to be known, to be safe. And the next passage we have about the good shepherd, is one that you all know really well. And I really started to bring out the King James to read this because that's kind of where our brains go when we start to hear it. We've heard that probably, I did, in in my childhood, a lot in the King James Version because we're going to the 23rd Psalm. You know this one. Listen. The Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. He lets me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He renews my life. He leads me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even when I go through the darkest valley, I fear no danger, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Only goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord as long as I live. Now, the CSB in that um, verse 6 is only goodness and faithful love. But I learned it as only goodness and mercy. And that's what I'm going to say. That may be how you learned it as well. Only goodness and mercy. So this tells us what it means to follow the good shepherd. We heard in John what it meant to be a sheep. Now, as a sheep, how do we follow the good shepherd? And it's so interesting to me that as David starts off this song, this psalm, he does it in the third person. The Lord is my shepherd. He's talking about God. He's not talking to God. He's talking about God. And he describes God's care, what it means to to have the good shepherd as your shepherd. And that care is complete. I shall not want. God's care is rest and nourishment. He renews my life. He turns our souls back to him. When we are depleted, he fills us. When we are wandering, he draws us back. He leads us in right paths. If you're most familiar with this passage from the King James Version, your brain may have filled in in the phrase, he leads me in paths of righteousness. He leads me along right paths, paths of righteousness. That Hebrew word means justice and rightness. He leads us along paths of justice and rightness. For his name's sake, not for us, for the glory of his name, when we walk in justice and rightness, he is glorified. Our following the good shepherd in the the right path that he leads us means that we are walking in paths of justice and rightness to bring him glory. And then we see a change. Here in the middle of this psalm, he goes from that speaking of God to speaking to God, speaking directly to God. What caused that? What do we see happening around that? Even when I go through the darkest valley, that'll make it get really real for all of us, for all of our theoretical conversation about God. When we're in the midst of a place that is scary and dark and full of shadows, we stop talking about him and start talking to him. And that is what David is doing here. Even when I go through the darkest valley, I fear no evil. I fear no danger. To follow the good shepherd does not mean that you are exempt from the dark and scary places, from suffering. But God is there with you. The shepherd is there with you in the midst of that. And he says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You know, the rod and the staff, the rod's a a club-like kind of thing, maybe this long. And the staff is that long, skinny piece of wood with the hook on it. Those are the tools of the shepherd, the tools to protect the sheep from predators, to rescue them from danger, to guide them. They're starting to wander off a little bit. And David says here, those tools, those ways you work in my life to guide me, to protect me, those are a comfort. They they console me. They do my heart good. They do my soul good. In ancient days, shepherd was also a title given to kings. And that rod and staff were then symbols of authority when the word shepherd was used to describe a king. And Jesus is our king. It's appropriate for this as well. And now something else interesting happens. We make another shift, another little turn, as we move from sheep, being a sheep, to being a guest at the table of God. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. I was listening to um, Dr. Chris Green, who is a theologian and a teaching pastor whose, whose work really has helped me gain insight, particularly Into this this psalm, this passage. I was listening to him several weeks ago teach on this, and I have to, to give him attribution for some of my insight today. But there was a moment when he was speaking that I had one of those little nudges from the Holy Spirit, you know, as Pastor Mauricio and Pastor Aaron and Pastor Jacob, and I stand up here and and try to faithfully teach you the word, you need to know that there are times when that word works in us as well, when we get that little, "Mm, something's not quite right here. And that happened to me as I was listening to this teaching on the 23rd Psalm. I realized something, you know, the the Spirit of God who inspired this text, who breathed into it, breathed life into it, the Spirit of God breathes into us through it, doing his work in us. And when I heard that, that sentence, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows, and I had that that Holy Spirit just kind of tapping on my heart, saying, "Mm, you need to pay attention here. I realized something, and this something I've given a a really, really theologically obscure name. It is called nanny, nanny, boo-boo spirituality. You know what that is, right? That taunting kids do, nanny, nanny, boo-boo. It's done when we want somebody to feel bad about something. And what I realized that the, the thing that happened in my heart, the mental image I got in my mind when I read about that table that God had prepared for me in the presence of my enemies, I saw that as a place of shame for my enemies, a place of Look, what I have and what you don't have, that there was some sort of feeling of vengeance in it, as though I had earned that place at the table. I felt, I felt like my place at the table was a way to shame my enemies, and it broke my heart. Because I was an enemy of God. And I was invited to the table. I was reconciled through the blood and body of Jesus. And he has made us ministers of reconciliation. And so for us, that table that we are invited to sit it, sit at in the presence of our enemies is not for us to create a place of shame for our enemies. It's a place to invite them to come in, to invite them to sit at the table with us. The God who loves us died for all of us, was raised for all of us. And how dare I use the table as a place of shame for somebody else. Even in my heart. You guys didn't know that. I didn't even really know it until that moment. And maybe there's something in you that that kind kind of, I kind of understand that. We're at the table in front of our enemies to invite them to it to tell them about the Good Shepherd, to walk paths of justice and rightness in front of them in ways that bring glory to God, to be agents of reconciliation, to stop living in fear however dark it seems. God is with you in that place. We cannot be snatched from the hand of Jesus. You cannot be snatched from the hand of Jesus. And the anointed one, the anointed one has anointed you to speak good news, to speak words of life, to invite to the table those who don't know him. Only goodness and faithful love, only goodness and mercy will pursue me all the days of my life. Follow me. Pursue me. Only goodness and mercy will follow me, will pursue me, follow. Not in the sense of God's goodness and mercy rushing to keep up with me as I move through the world of it just being right there on my heels, always with me. No, follow in the sense that as you, a minister of reconciliation, one invited to the table, as you move through the world, as you move through your community, what's left in your wake, what's behind you, what follows behind you is goodness and mercy. Goodness and mercy that glorify God. And we will dwell in the house of the Lord as long as we live. May we, like Tabitha, like that disciple, may we see the vulnerable, the hurting, the ones without voice, the ones who have been shamed. And may we invite them to the table. And together we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever.